0: Cultural, economic, political, maybe a dash of social issues. These are discussions that we've been having since time immemorial. But it's easy to view these issues as binary. It's easy to view them as either black or white. When in fact, they're a whole lot of grey. On the issue of solving the global climate crisis, is Greta Thunberg the real deal or is she merely media hype? Thank you for tuning in and I'm going to try and answer that for you. On this episode of A Whole Lot of Grey with Anish Anandram. Scientists, politicians, journalists and academia around the world have declared that the biggest issue facing our generation is the climate crisis and Greta Thunberg is the name on everyone's minds when we're talking about this crisis. So, who is Greta? Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old climate activist from Sweden who was recently thrust into the geopolitical spotlight for her speech at the UN, where she shamed world leaders for their inaction to solve the ongoing climate crisis, where she urged everybody to make it their top priority. Now, although she missed out on the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize, Greta Thunberg was awarded the highly coveted International Children's Peace Prize, which she received recently on November the 20th at The Hague in the Netherlands. I'm just going to read out, for your benefit, the award's mission statement as per their website. So this award is awarded to children between the ages of 12 and 18, who have shown a, and I quote, remarkable commitment to combating the problems that millions of children face worldwide. And when we look at the archives of the prize, and I'm paraphrasing over here, past winners include those who have made a significant contribution to advocating children's rights and improving the situation of vulnerable children, such as orphans, child laborers, and children with terminal diseases around the globe. So in this episode, we're gonna dissect two key questions. The first, should Greta have won the International Children's Peace Prize? And the second, what exactly is her plan going forward for climate change? Jumping right into it, let's answer the first question. Should Greta have won the prize? So the award is bestowed upon winners chosen by the expert committee of the Dutch organization the Kids' Rights Foundation, and it's been awarded since 2005. Keeping in mind the organization's mission statement, which we read out for you earlier, and to evaluate whether Greta was worthy of winning the award, I will be taking a look at the first living recipient of the award, the nominee who lost out this year, and the most recent one while contrasting their accomplishments with one another. So the first of these is Om Prakash, who was just a 14-year-old child laborer from Rajasthan, a state in northwestern India, when he won the award. At just the tender age of five, he was abducted from his parents and forced to work as a laborer for three years on the fields of villages in rural Rajasthan. Getting kidnapped from your family, forced manual labor toiling on the fields, This is a reality that many of us are privileged to have never lived our entire lives, and let alone at such a young age. Soon after, thankfully, he was rescued by activists from the organization Bachpan Bachao Andolan, which, for those of you wondering, in English would roughly translate to Save the Childhood Movement. Now, ever since his rescue, he's been dedicated to fighting for children's empowerment all over rural India. He's even used this platform to start a network of child-friendly villages, which are effectively villages that prohibit child labor. He then started an NGO called Punima Pachala, which even today in 2019 does a lot of great advocacy to prevent the exploitation of children in rural India by protecting these children from a variety of exploitative methods, such as trafficking, slavery, and forced marriage, among other barbaric practices. These are the situations that children often find themselves in throughout parts of the developing world. And through this NGO, Om has used his platform to continue, and I'm quoting from the mission statement again, advocating for and improving the situations of vulnerable children around the globe. Now let's take the case of Iftikar Ahmad, the nominee for this year's award, who lost out to Greta Thunberg. Again, straight from the Kids Rights website, Iftikar has developed his own piece of hardware, a braille board, that has condensed more than 10,000 books to help blind and visually impaired children read and learn. Now, devising hardware like that is already an impressive feat. It makes it more so when you learn that Iftikhar is just a 17 year old boy from Bangladesh. About 20 blind and visually impaired students are currently avid users of this hardware. And Iftikhar is actively working with the Bangladeshi government to ensure that all blind children are given this device for free. But despite all of this, we're not really hearing about people like Om or like Iftikhar, are we? And compared to both of them, Greta Thunberg has shot to international stardom and celebrityhood while these two individuals hailing from rural South Asia that have actively worked to reform the lives of impoverished and differently able children in the region are not receiving nearly the same attention. So what do we know about Greta and the work that she's done? Before I get into it, I want to preface a couple of things over here. I believe that it is absolutely commendable that a 16-year-old is able to so impassionately speak to world leaders at the UN on a pressing issue that divides the aisle for a multitude of reasons around the world. Further, none of us should really deny that serious efforts ought to be made to preserve our beautiful planet. As per the World Wildlife Federation, not doing so would have a host of implications. Rising sea levels, forest fires, and environmental degradation that would isolate endangered species like tigers, ultimately rendering them extinct. On a more humanitarian note, roughly half a billion people around the world in places ranging from Miami to Sydney would lose their daily source of protein. This is estimated by the California Academy of Sciences to be a result of the destruction of coral reefs, which serve as a vital component of the oceanic ecosystem. And all of this can happen with the global temperature rising by just 1.5 degrees Celsius. Is this a big change? Well, for the coral reefs, it certainly is. And why does it matter to us? If the corals get destroyed, you might be wondering. For those of you who are wondering how exactly coral reefs impact our food chain and income directly, coral reefs host a species known as zooplankton, which are the main diet for a majority of fish around the world. Fishermen and coastal inhabitants near the sea would lose their food and income if a majority of the fish population were to die out, which is a risk we run if the zooplankton population were to die out, which is a risk we run if the coral reef population were to die out. So that's how the coral reefs directly impact us and directly impact our food chain. And all of this is not even taking into account the 200,000 odd lives that are lost annually to heat exposure, flooding, and other natural phenomena that result from climate change. That's roughly 20% of the population of Washington DC dying every single year because of these occurrences. Imagine I told you that the entire population equivalent to the capital city of the United States would die out in less than a decade if these phenomena were to go unchecked. So it's clear that the consequences of climate change would be devastating to both our species as well as the rest of the planet. It's important to note, therefore, that the question I'm asking you on this episode isn't, is climate change dangerous or bad, but rather... How have Greta Thunberg's contributions to climate activism justified her winning the award? So let's take a look at a timeline of what Greta Thunberg has done up to this point in time. For our convenience, Reuters has published an extensive timeline in mid-September earlier this year, of which we'll be taking a look at some key events. August 20th, 2018. Greta Thunberg, then a 15-year-old Swedish student, skips school to protest outside the Swedish parliament for more action against climate change. Let's fast-forward a couple of months to November 2018, and now more than 17,000 students in 24 countries take part in Friday school strikes. Greta Thunberg now begins to speak at high-profile events across Europe, including UN climate talks in Poland. Let's go to the next calendar year in March 2019. Greta Thunberg is now nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and the number of students taking part in school strikes hits more than 2 million people across 135 countries. Fast forward another couple of months to May 2019, and Greta Thunberg is now named one of the world's most influential people by Time magazine, appearing on its cover. She then tweeted, Now I'm speaking to the whole world. And finally, on September 18th, 2019, Greta Thunberg is one of four students invited to a U.S. congressional hearing to provide the next generation's views on climate change. Later, she joins an existing lawsuit from 2015 against the United States government for their failure to live up to their previously set carbon emission reduction standards. We're going to dissect this lawsuit and talk about how it's not quite tangible as it seems a bit later on in this episode. So, by and large, with the exception of the above lawsuit, her timeline is almost entirely constituted of either organizing or partaking in climate strikes. Now, climate strikes certainly have some positive attributes. They spread awareness and information on the issue while building solidarity among the populace and activists. But what tangible outcomes in the battle against climate change do they yield? And this is a question being asked by prominent professors and academics as well. Dr. Nives Dolak and Dr. Asim Prakash, both professors at the University of Washington, wrote a piece in Forbes magazine about how climate strikes have no real weightage until and unless they have some leverage attached to them. They give an example of why airline strikes, for instance, are so successful. Let me break this example down for you. If airline workers go on strike, passengers are then unable to fly, and ultimately the airlines would lose revenue. So we can see in this example that the strikers have leverage, and the airline therefore has an economically vested interest to react. But in the case of 17,000 school students, these 10th graders, walking out of school on a Friday to protest climate change, what real leverage do they wield over the biggest stakeholders in the climate change debate. Do fossil fuel firms and governments have any real incentive to pass eco-friendly policies and reforms as a result of these school strikes? Even regarding the earlier lawsuit we spoke to you about, I for one wonder whether it can be deemed as anything more than symbolism. For your context, the lawsuit was titled Juliana versus The United States. An appeal was filed on behalf of the U.S. government last year, which temporarily put a halt on this case. So, this case currently isn't even being heard by the Supreme Court, but rather by a lower circuit court instead. Secondly, according to the Climate and Life Center at Columbia University, just a couple of things. The first, super unlikely that the plaintiffs win. Second, even in the unlikely event that they do win, it's likely going to be reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court given that there is past legal precedent for the courts not being the arbiter of deciding the level of carbon emissions within the U.S. This is something which the voting populace needs to decide, which would mean that in order for any of Greta's strikes to lead to tangible policy reform. The constituents in a country need to be convinced because like I stated earlier, these student climate strikers organized by Greta, unfortunately, do not have much leverage over either governments or fossil fuel firms. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the winner of the International Children's Peace Prize is one who has, and I quote again from the website, made a significant contribution to advocating children's rights and improving the situation of vulnerable children. Keeping that statement in mind, are Greta's contributions to this cause even comparable to what Om Ariftikar have done? The quantitative results of her activism have led to the hashtag how dare you, garnering more than 100,000 retweets on Twitter and the organization of climate strikes around the globe. As we've said earlier, Greta's activism has certainly been positive in terms of spreading awareness. But has it really advocated for improving the situation of vulnerable children worldwide? More importantly, what has it done to actually combat the climate crisis that we're facing? What are her plans going forward? So without further ado, let's get to the second question that I wish to dissect on this podcast. What is her plan to combat climate change? Now, we've all heard about Greta's awesome speech at the UN where she impassionately lambasted these world leaders for their inaction on climate change. We've also all heard about how awesome her journey to the UN to deliver that speech was. The quote-unquote carbon-free journey, where she embarked via sailboat from Plymouth in England to New York City. Now, while it's certainly not easy to take a sailboat and embark on a two-week journey from Plymouth to New York, did you know that two of her initial crew members had to fly to New York at the start since there wasn't any space left on the sailboat? And did you also know that two of her crew members had to fly to New York after Greta's journey in order to sail it back from New York to Plymouth since Greta was sticking around in North America for an extended period of time after her speech. This is not some random conspiracy theory that I'm peddling, by the way. Major European media outlets such as The Times in the UK and Der Spiegel in Germany have confirmed this. Julien Giger, a member of the Creative Professionals Networking Group, and a senior journalist and editor based out of Michigan in the United States, estimated that the flights taken by those four people alone generated more than 2.1 million grams of carbon dioxide. And what does this number look like? For perspective, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency estimates that roughly 200,000 acres of forest would be required to offset that level of carbon emission. So this is emblematic of what is generally wrong with a lot of efforts in the climate activism space today. The lack of a practical solution to cut down on carbon footprint in a scalable and cost-efficient manner. And don't just take my word for it, the University of California Climate Solutions Group infers that unless future climate proposals actively account for cost efficiency and its practicality within a strong regulatory framework, those climate proposals would ultimately be rendered toothless. Greta Thunberg has been immortalized as the face of the climate movement, but has she actually been the most devoted climate activist in terms of commitment to preserving the environment? Well, when we look at global outreach regarding the fight against climate change and in terms of sheer time spent preserving the environment, it is super hard to discount the impact of Salamarada Timaka from Tumkur, which is a rural district in southern India. Her story is simply mind-boggling. She's lived for more than a century, still alive today, by the way, at 107 years old, Uh, She grew up impoverished in rural southern India and is a recipient of the Padma Shri and has an international NGO called Thimaka's Resources for Environmental Education, which functions both in Los Angeles as well as in Oakland in California. When we look at all of this alone, it's already far more than what Greta has brought to the table in the fight against climate change. And like Mrs. Thimaka, there are numerous other individuals around the world who are making efforts to preserve their local environments, but yet, they are not receiving the same spotlight, despite having done a ton to preserve the environment, and who hail from far more vulnerable parts of the globe than Sweden. There's probably another da Thimaka in your backyard, who you've never even heard of. So far, Greta's most prominent geopolitical action, is filing an official complaint against five countries, France, Germany, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina, for their failure to prevent environmental degradation in their respective jurisdictions. Now, all this sounds well and good, but the complaint seems to have no tangible end goal in sight, apart from ensuring that the five countries will do their adequate share to cut down on carbon emissions. I mean, we've all heard that before, right? It's not like we've never heard politicians or heads of state make empty promises. So here is the thing. There's no penalization. There is no sanction that can be meted out by the international legal system should these countries fail to comply with Greta's demands. There is no real incentive to cut down on carbon emissions insofar as it promotes economic growth in a cost-efficient manner, which is the reality for a lot of these countries today. In conclusion, conclusion here is what we can surmise about greta and her activism. Her activism has done an amazing job of garnering much needed media attention on a highly pressing issue. And it's also brought about an increased awareness and vigor in the fight to preserve our environment. However, this awareness, vigor, and activism needs to translate into tangible policy reform in order for her to be heralded as the champion climate activist of our time. So let's take a look at three reasons why her activism needs to go a long long way. That is, if she's serious about making any sort of meaningful change. The first, so we know that she's filed a lawsuit against five nations, Brazil, Argentina, France, Germany, and Turkey. But do you know who the five biggest polluters per capita in the world today are? It's the US, Saudi Arabia, Canada, South Korea, and Australia, none of whom she's included in this lawsuit. Even if we take her at her best case scenario, which is the symbolic lawsuit we spoke to you about earlier, Juliana versus the U.S., will in all probability get reversed by the Supreme Court, as stated by Columbia University's Center for Climate Change, which we cited and spoke to you about earlier in this episode. And the top five countries generate more than 65 metric tons of carbon per capita per annum. To put things in perspective, again, what does this number look like? As per the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, this level of carbon emissions is enough to power more than 30 million smartphones. So unless her activism magically finds a way to incentivize these five nations from cutting down on emissions, it is super unlikely that she's going to have any global impact in the fight against climate change. The second reason, Greta Thunberg hails from Sweden, which is a highly industrialized society with less than 10 million people. To put things in perspective, that number is smaller than the population of most metropolitan cities in countries like India, Brazil, China, or the USA, Rio de Janeiro, New Delhi, Shanghai, these are all cities that have more people than all of Sweden. So the reality is this, a lot of the majorly populated countries right now need to emit some form of carbon in order to get to the same levels of industrialization that the Nordic countries like Sweden or Norway or Finland enjoy today. Tom Odula who is a journalist, as a part of the Associated Press's East Africa Bureau, reports that 90% of the waste in nations that are classified as low-income is either burnt or dumped, owing to a lack of proper waste management infrastructure. The National Center for Atmospheric Research in the U.S. states that burning waste is a major reason for the worsening of air quality they state that almost 30 percent of global emissions that cause air pollution come from waste burning. Now, a lot of these low-income countries don't have the mechanisms to recycle or process the waste that they generate. Why is all of this relevant? For starters, how do you expect those countries to transition to renewable sources of energy like wind or solar or hydro and cut down on their carbon footprint when they're burning plastic and burning rubber just to dispose of them. I, for one, can't help but think that Greta's preaching to the rest of us to simply stop burning, even though there's no real alternative proposed, comes from a highly privileged point of view. Sweden had time to industrialize, Sweden had time to develop, so they can afford to divorce themselves from the realities that low-income countries go through to dispose of their waste. Synapse Energy, an environmental consulting firm based in Boston, says that solar panels are a luxury for the citizenry of the U.S., So then how do you expect countries like Ghana or Pakistan or Liberia to make this transition if people in America think that this transition is expensive? If these citizens of the low-income and developing world were all on Twitter, they might have even asked Greta, how dare you, in response to her wistfulness to have everyone transition to renewable resources. This reality is a sobering reminder that Greta Thunberg, while her intentions and activism may be well-meaning, hails from a socioeconomic upbringing that cannot comprehend many of the realities that serve as obstacles to solving climate change. The third and final reason. Carbon emissions are going to continue to get polluted insofar as both economic growth as well as cost efficiency are on the table. So that being said, Greta's best bet is best echoed by Anand Mahindra, who is the chairman of the Mahindra Group in India, which is one of India's largest companies and is an MNC worth roughly $30 billion. He urges her to find a way for sustainability to promote economic growth. But while that's a great solution, the harsh reality is right now, it would cost countries an immense amount of time and money to make that transition. The Institute for Energy Research estimates that it would cost 4.5 trillion dollars and at least the next three decades for low and medium income countries to successfully make that transition. Again, for perspective, 4.5 trillion dollars is roughly a quarter of United States GDP. So where will these poor countries get the cash from? It's only once sustainability brings the same promise of economic growth and cost efficiency as fossil fuels do, the global fraternity can work on collaborative solutions to more efficiently invest their R&D and tax credits on sustainable practices that are not only environmentally friendly, but also economically viable. And until and unless that happens, it's just going to be deemed as privileged discourse where those individuals who hail from small and industrialized economies are chastising the rest of the world to not develop and to not burn fossil fuels without providing any alternative as to how we can use eco-friendly, renewable sources of energy to our advantage while remaining cost-efficient. In conclusion, I've got a couple of things to say. As a 16-year-old, Greta Thunberg is certainly commendable. Most 16 year olds, me included, were probably just playing Xbox all day at her age without a care in the world. And she certainly has gotten a lot of people involved in the discussion and you could even argue that this is only the beginning of her journey. But the hard truth is this, she has been the recipient of an insane amount of media coverage and has been deemed as our savior right now to combat the climate crisis. What about the other unsung heroes in your backyard around the world in low and medium income countries that we've been ignoring? We've shown you in this episode itself that there are other activists, both for the environment as well as for children's rights, who have done more than Greta has but have not received any of the attention. I cannot help but wonder that given Greta's lack of understanding about the context that racial minorities and other impoverished communities live through around the world, have we chosen the right person as a symbol for the movement that is supposed to be dealing with the greatest threat that our generation is facing? So that's all on this episode of A Whole Lot of Gray. If you liked this episode and want to stay updated on future content, please be sure to subscribe to this channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or whatever platform you are listening to this on. Additionally, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or on our official website, both of which are available in this episode's description.